It's time, D-Heads. Disney Blue presents Disney On Demand. Every week, Disney Blue lets you relive the magic, the movies, and the memories with celebrity guests, the best of classic Disney, and breaking news on Disney's latest. So put on your ears and give it a little bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Disney Blue's Disney On Demand is on the air! Now, here's your host, Jonathan Johnson. All right, all of you D-heads, you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blue's Disney On Demand. And first off, happy, creepy, spooky Friday the 13th, followed by happy Valentine's Day. Yes, get your creepy spookiness on as well as celebrating with that loved one in your life. Well, with that said, it is show number 99 for the week of February 12th, 2015, and we have all kinds of fun here this week as we are taking a trip back in time. That's right, we're going back to audio animatronics, the early stages of It's a Small World, and all kinds of fun as we have none other than Ryan Ritchie, the writer-director of the documentary After the Fair, all about the 1964-65 World's Fair. Ryan's going to stop in and talk about a variety of different things. What it was like making this documentary, uncovering these lost gems that were the World's Fair, Walt Disney's influence, Jim Henson, and many other things. I am excited for this one as somebody that loves historical and past and just things that really influenced pop culture in America that we know today. I am excited to talk with Ryan Ritchie with After the Fair, the documentary about the 64-65 World's Fair. In addition, no show would be complete without the D-Team. That's right, the D-Team helped make the show, and you have questions and he has answers, and Aaron's going to answer all your questions in I Want to Know. We also have Paige taking a look at one of my favorite Disney gems in this week's Magical Music Review. We have Caitlin with the latest from the Walt Disney World Resort with WDWN2, your two-minute rundown of the parks, and we also have Just What Happened within the Disney Company with this week in Disney history with Nathan. And let's not forget going down into the vault. Yes, sometimes you gotta head on down and get that DVD and Blu-ray to add to your collection and Jason's gonna do that for us with this week's The Vault. There's tons of news hot off the D-Wire and many other goodies. So before we officially kick off this show and take a trip back in time, I do want to mention that DizRadio.com is probably sponsored by DVC-Rental.com. At DVC-Rental.com, you can save up to 60% on your next Walt Disney World vacation just by purchasing unused Vacation Club points through DVC-Rental.com. You can save that money and spend it on what else? Souvenirs. And make that magical trip of your lifetime to the Walt Disney World Resort. So definitely check them out. The official sponsor of Diz Radio dvc-rental.com. So with that said, all of you D-heads, I am excited. I'm officially ready to kick off the show here this week. So let's officially kick off show number 99 for the week of February 12, 2015. How else? By looking forward into that great, big, beautiful tomorrow. Be right back, all of you D-heads. Heart when it becomes a reality, 
it's a dream come true for you and me. So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow shining at the end of every day. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow just a dream away. Envelope to Davis and Kirk. Right down that piece. And once you're at the fair, I know it will be an experience that all Americans and all visitors uh, will be proud of and think of for many years. contributions have introduced new words uh, to our vocabulary. Uh, your most recent is audio animatronic. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's, uh, you know, sound uh, animation through electronics. We have roamed these United States and literally combed the globe for pavilions and exhibits which will reflect the achievements of all men in industry, culture, and the arts, and harmless entertainment. The 1964-65 New York World's Fair was a reflection of life in the United States in the mid-20th century. Hi, I'm Ryan Ritchie, director of After the Fair, and you're listening to Diz Radio's Disney On Demand.
you just know it. Oh, and I'll teach you what it is to live. It's the same fundamentals you used to forget. Yeah. I can teach you what it is to be kind. Just open up and expand your mind. Gosh, can't we all get along? Hold hands around the fire and sing my song. Dog, put a smile on your face so we can live together in this happy place. Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. You hear that? It's the winds of change. Here's your host, Jonathan Johnson. All right, LVD heads, so I hope you enjoyed the official kickoff for show number 99 for the week of February 12th, 2015, as we have all kinds of fun on the horizon as we are going back in time to the 1964 and 65 World's Fair and with Ryan Ritchie, the director, the writer of the documentary After the Fair, all about the World's Fair. We're going to uncover all kinds of goodies. We have the D team here. That's right. We have Aaron, Paige, Caitlin, Nathan, and Jason all stopping in. So let's jump into news hot off the D wire. But before I do that, I do want to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at the show. And first and foremost, you can always visit our official website at dizradio.com. That's D I Z Radio. There you can find our fullest of past shows, the complete archives, our latest news feed, our lifetime of Disney player, our memes, and more right there on our official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. You can also connect up with us all the social media outlets on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney On Demand. You can friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash John Diz. That's J-O-N-D-I-Z. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and more. Just search Disney Blue, that's B-L-U, or Diz Radio, that's D-I-Z Radio. And remember, you can get our latest shows just by subscribing in iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Just look up Disney On Demand or Diz Radio, D-I-Z Radio. So, all VD heads, with that said, let's jump into news hot off D-Wire because we have a ton of it here this week. And let's talk about Francesca Capaldi. Yes, the little red-haired girl of the upcoming Peanuts 3D CGI film, Snoopy and the World's Favorite Beagle. That's right, can Charlie Brown ever win the attention of his beloved little red-haired girl? Indeed he did on Saturday, January 31st, when the little red-haired girl herself, known as Francesca Capaldi, who you may know, who plays the character of the little red-haired girl in the upcoming Peanuts film. She's also known to many of you D-heads out there as Chloe James on Disney's Dog with a Blog. Now she hosted a variety of her friends, including Sky Jackson from Jesse, Merritt Layton, and many others involved to have a great party for Peanuts 
and the little red-haired girl. Yes, the party featured, and they had a variety of different guests and DJs and many other things as they're gearing up for the Peanuts special, Be My Valentine Charlie Brown, that is airing on Friday the 13th at 7pm on ABC and to promote the upcoming CGI Snoopy film. As she mentioned, I was really excited to host this year's Valentine's party with Snoopy and his adorable sister Belle. It's pretty much the best way to celebrate Valentine's Day ever, said Capaldi. My friends and I had a great time trying to clothes, making Valentine's, and eating chocolates, of course. So now you can get ready because on November 6, 2015, she is co-starring as the voice of the little red-haired girl in the upcoming The Peanuts movie, as Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Lucy, Linus, and the rest of the gang are making their big screen debut as they've never been seen before in 3D CG animation. That's right, you're going to have a variety of different things as Snoopy, the world's most lovable beagle, embarks on his greatest mission as he takes to the skies to his arch nemesis, the Red Baron. Well, his best pal Charlie Brown begins his own epic quest, and there's going to be some great things. I am excited to see Peanuts making its round and rebirth for a new generation. Definitely fantastic. And remember, check out Be My Valentine Charlie Brown on Friday the 13th at 7 p.m. Central Time on ABC. Now, since I was talking about, you know, bringing things for a new generation, how about Walt Disney Records, the Legacy Collection, Pinocchio, that was released this week? That's right, the sixth release of the Legacy Collection is celebrating the 75th anniversary of Pinocchio with a two-disc set, which includes the original restored motion picture soundtrack, three all-new Lost Chords recordings, plus bonus tracks, enchanting illustrations, original concept art, and more. Pinocchio was a groundbreaking achievement in the area of effects of animation, giving realistic movements to vehicles, machinery, and natural elements such as rain, lightning, snow, smoke, shadows, and water. Now, the film was released to theaters on February 23, 1940, and Pinocchio became the first animated feature to win a competitive Academy Award, winning two Best for Music Original Score and Best Music Original When You Wish Upon a Star, which, come on, if you're a Disney fan, we all know that song. Now, this beloved ballad became instantly recognizable as part of Disney's entertainment legacy. In 1994, Pinocchio was added to the United States National film registry being confirmed as culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant in history. Now in disc one of the Legacy Collection, you're going to get many different things, including the songs and the score from the restored original motion picture soundtrack. Now the album's extensive linear notes were written by, by Jim Fanning, an internationally published Disney historian, writer, and editor who has written for many divisions of the Walt Disney Company. Now disc two is going to feature the lost chords of Pinocchio. There's three brand new recordings rolling along to Pleasure Island, No Strings, and as I was saying to the Duchess, all brought to life the way they would have sounded in 1940. Now, Disc 2 also includes five bonus tracks performed by Jiminy Cricket, better known as Cliff Edwards, from the original Mickey Mouse Club. Now, Russell Schroeder provides an overview of the Lost Chords project, as well as background on each song. Now, Schroeder worked as an artist for the Walt Disney Company for over 29 years. Now, in addition to Disney's Lost Chords Volume 1 and 2, Russell authorized several other books, including Disney, The Ultimate Visual Guide, Mickey Mouse, My Life in Pictures, and many others. So there's some great things on the horizon. You can now get this, The Lost Chords, three new tracks, and fully remastered Disney's Pinocchio. I myself am a great fan of Pinocchio, but now you can get Walt Disney Records, The Legacy Collection, Pinocchio, official soundtrack as it was released this last week.
Now, since I do like things that are a bit in the past and also in the future, I consider myself a lot like Walt in that way, I did take a trip back on our official website at DizRadio.com this last week, which I think many of you D-heads will enjoy. I took you back to a trip to the Liberty Tree Tavern. Yes, the Liberty Tree Tavern, back to 1983, and the Little Patriots menu at the Magic Kingdom. Now, I'm not going to give you too much about it. You can go to the website and read and actually see photos from it. But let's just say, if you go back, you may remember a time when you didn't have to wait for ADRs, make reservations, so many ridiculous days in advance. And, you know, this was a time when you could just show up and have fun. And I had a chance to get a menu and hang on to it for years and years. So if you want to find out more about this and look at this vintage Little Patriots menu from the Liberty Tree Tavern, it is posted on our official website at DizRadio.com. And also, I want to hear your feedback. Call us in on the Magical Memories Hotline. Drop us a line. And just, what do you remember about Liberty Square? back from the era of 1983. Now pushing right along here, let's get into something that's a little more uplifting and different because I know many of you D-heads out there, we come from all walks of life. And how about Exceptional Minds video tribute captures the life story of an author's journey into the world of Walt Disney in order to reach his son with autism. That's right, it's a familiar story that so many families living on autism spectrum know. A young boy is growing up strong and healthy until the age of three when a storm appears. He becomes afraid, runs out into the night, and crosses a bridge that collapses behind him, unable to make his way back home. Yes, a Seminole Institute's open mind lecture at UCLA this last Tuesday, a team of animators at Exceptional Minds Vocational School for Young Adults with Autism presented a short video based upon the life story of the best-selling author and guest speaker, Ron Suskind, whose autistic son, Owen, found his way back home through a most unusual mediator, Disney Movies. Suskind is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist whose latest book, Life Animated, chronicles his life's family journey into the world of Walt Disney in order to communicate with his son, who has autism. Now, during Tuesday's Open Mind Lecture Series, sponsored by UCLA's Friends of the Seminole Institute, he had a chance to talk about how he was a journalist by day and by night. He was a father who tried to reach his nonverbal autistic son, whose singular interest in Disney eventually provided a bridge between the two. As they have stated minutes after viewing the short film for the first time, Mr. Suskind spoke of, of his now adult son Owen's passion to bring back the art of original animation drawings similar to that used in Disney movies of his youth, such as The Little Mermaid. I wanted to thank these exceptional minds for that original animation, says Suskind. Owen will love it, he added. Now his story is one that captured this video tribute and was fantastic. I mean, these are animators and the team that included many different people, including students, animators, and more. If you want to find out more about this and find out more about the author, autism, and ways to reach through Disney, you can definitely check it out at ExceptionalMindStudio.org. Now, since we are talking about movies, and uh, in one way, shape, or form, let's talk about Disney's live-action Cinderella to be released in IMAX theaters globally on March 13th. Yes, IMAX Corporation and the Walt Disney Studios announced this week that the highly anticipated live-action Cinderella, directed by Academy Award nominee Kenneth Branagh and starring Academy winner Kate Blanchett as stepmother Lily James in this timeless title role, will be digitally remastered into the immersive IMAX format and released in IMAX theaters globally beginning March 13th. A live-action feature was inspired from the classic fairy tale Cinderella, written by Chris Weiss and produced by Simon Kinberg. Now this is going to be a great step for Disney and this film is going to be fantastic. As they put it, we have been fortunate to see the movie several weeks ago and we believe Cinderella will resonate with moviegoers from around the globe and we can't wait to share it with our IMAX audience in a larger than life format worldwide. 
Now, the IMAX release of Cinderella will be digitally remastered into the image and sound quality of the IMAX experience with IMAX DMR, Digital Remastering Technology. Now, this is going to be fantastic, and if you want to find out more about this and this film, because it is getting trailers upon trailers getting released lately, you can check out more at Disney.com slash Cinderella. Now, moving from movies, let's get on to the Internet. And something that is definitely big nowadays is making sure your children are safe on the Internet. I mean, this is a huge, huge thing, and I myself, being a father, I'm you know always worried about this. Well, let's just talk about on Safer Internet Day, a collaboration with Disney's Club Penguin and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NetSmart's workshop launched an online education training program. Now, the new program, Teaching Digital Citizenship, aims to arm educators, law enforcement officers, and others with the tools they need to teach internet safety to children ages 5 through 17. Now, the free training program is available online and focuses on good digital citizenship, both what is and how to teach it. Now, as they've released, this distinction between online and offline means less to the next generation. They are digital natives who grew up online, said John Ryan, the president and CEO of NCMEC. When teaching kids to be ethical and safe, we cannot ignore the choices they are making on the internet through social media. This training can help anyone involved with educating children understand the risks kids face online and how to empower them to be responsible digital citizens. Couldn't have said it better myself. Well, all right, he said it better than I could have said it, but still. Now, this is fantastic workshop, and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children's workshop, this training tackles issues like digital literacy, online privacy, online sexual solicitation, sexting, cyberbullying, and more. Now, it was created by NCMEC based on the organization's strategies in internet safety education. Now, if you want to find out more about this, this is fantastic. Disney is on board with it. You can find out more at clubpenguin.com with the It Starts With You campaign, as well as NetSmarts, that's N-E-T-S. SMARTZ.org slash training. And you can also find more about this on our official website where we posted it because I believe it is something that should not be looked over in today's society. Now, moving away from the internet, let's say we want to get away from everything. We want to set sail and cruise the open waves. Yes, how about Disney Cruise Line introducing Star Wars Day at Sea on select Disney fantasy sailings. That's right, in 2016, Disney Cruise Line guests can celebrate the legendary adventures of the iconic characters from Star Wars Saga during the brand new day-long celebration aboard eight special sailings on the Disney fantasy Star Wars Day at Sea. Marking the first official appearance of the heroes and villains of Star Wars aboard a Disney Cruise Line ship, Star Wars Day at Sea combines the power of the Force, the magic of Disney, and the excitement of cruising in an out-of-this-galaxy experience unlike any other. Occurring one day during each of the eight Disney fantasy sailings, Star Wars Day at Sea will transport guests to a galaxy far, far away, in the Western Caribbean, of course. Now, this is going to have a full day of Star Wars celebrations, including a deck party, meet and greets, as well as themed youth activities, and more. Now, they're also going to have characters on hand, like Darth Vader, Chewbacca, Boba Fett, Stormtroopers, and other characters from across the galaxy. Now, a shipboard version of the popular Jedi Training Academy experience is going to happen as well, where they can face off, become a Jedi Master, and fight Darth Vader, much like you can do at the Hollywood Studios. And kids and families can enjoy friendly competition during Star Wars trivia games, with all kinds of facts and questions from the films and television series, as well as, in the evening, adults can entertain a nightclub as they stepped into Mos Eisley Cantina scene. Now, there's also going to be film screenings, celebrities on hand, 
a Star Wars deck party, and fireworks, and there's going to be great things on this. Now, the Star Wars Day at Sea will be on the Disney Fantasy Cruising starting off on January 9th and going all the way through April 16th of 2016. Now, as I mentioned, they're going to have some great things, including great new episodes of Star Wars Rebels. You're going to have great films and, of course, celebrities making appearances like, like Darth Vader and many others, and the deck party with the characters converging on stage for a timeless fun in the galaxy. Definitely check this one out. I know I am excited. Now, moving away from the ocean, let's get to the parks. And how about the Walt Disney World Resort? And how about the Richard Petty Experience at Disney to close? Yes, some employees could be moving to Daytona Beach. Now, this is huge news. Now, the Richard Petty Driving Experience will be moving some of its 70 employees from its Disney World track to Daytona International Speedway when it closes this summer. Now, Petty Holdings LLC confirmed Thursday that starting July 1st, it will no longer operate at Walt Disney World Speedway, a one-mile track near Orlando. Disney has plans to use the land to make transportation improvements, according to the company's statement. Now, Lauren, a spokeswoman, told the News Journal that the company just found out about Disney's plans on Wednesday and is still trying to formulate a plan, but it is looking to relocate its driving experience in the Orlando area. Now, in the meantime, some of its employees will be given an option of working in Daytona Beach. Now, this comes as a shock, and I do think that it's kind of bad that they just found out about this from Disney in such short time. But as they put it, our main focus at this moment is taking care of our staff and preparing them for the upcoming transition, said Bill Scott, Vice President of Petty Holdings. Any reserved guest prior to July 1st will have the same fantastic experience that we have delivered since 1997 at the Walt Disney World Speedway. Now, if they do move to Daytona Beach, at Daytona, the three-lap ride costs about $143, while customers can take the wheel for 50 laps at the cost of $3,200. Now, the company is also offering exotic driving experiences, featured Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and more. But let's just say, come July 1st, Richard Petty driving experience is going to be gone. And uh, from what I heard is it is going to get leveled. So all of you D-heads, with that said, I'm going to release the reins to the D-team here. I'm going to take a break here, get something to drink. We have fun. We're going to continue our trek as we go back in time to the 1964 and 65 World's Fair, where Walt Disney was so influential to many different things and, of course, many attractions that came to the parks. As we're getting ready to talk with the director, the man behind it, Ryan Ritchie, we also have the D-team coming up. You have questions, he has answers, and Aaron is going to answer all those questions with I Want to Know. We also have Caitlin stopping in with a two-minute rundown of what's happening at the parks with WDW and 2. And let's not forget looking back at what happened in the Walt Disney Company with This Week in Disney History. We have all kinds of fun on the horizon, so I'm going to take a step back. And before I let you go, I do want to mention that DizRadio.com is probably sponsored by DVC-Rental.com, the official sponsor of Diz Radio. You can save up to 60% by purchasing unused Vacation Club points through DVC-Rental.com and use that money on many souvenirs and make a fantastic vacation. So definitely book that trip and stay at the best Walt Disney World resorts at DVC-Rental.com. Dot com, the official sponsor of Diz Radio. So all of you D-heads, with that said, I'm going to release the reins to the D-team, and as I always say, I will be right back. Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Which pets get to sleep on velvet mats? Naturellement, the Aristocats. Which pets are blessed with the fairest forms and faces? Which pets know best all the gentle social graces? Which pets live on cream and loving pats? 
Naturellement, the Aristocats, they show aristocratic bearing when they're seen upon an area. An aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no, which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Naturellement, the Aristocats. Bearing when they're seen upon an airing, an aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no! Which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Mais naturellement, oh boy, mais naturellement, oh naturellement, the aristocats. You know you're on television. You don't know about television, do you? I want you to look pretty. That's it. Get your head up and hold it there now. Show them how you behave. That's a good boy. That's a good boy. How would you like to have one of these little dinosaurs for a pet? Actually, they're tame as a kitten, quite friendly. And they won't bite the hand that feeds them, because they're strictly vegetarians. You know, scientists call these little creatures uh, brontosauruses. But we have named them uh, Huey. Thank you, Huey. And Dewey. Now, Dewey, don't get bashful on me now. Come on up. Get it up there. That's it. That's it. Thank you. And Louie. Hey, Louie. Hey, boy. Huh? <laughs> Actually, baby dinosaurs uh, would make great house pets. Of course, you'd have to have a very large house because a creature like this would grow to be 90 feet long and 30 feet tall and weigh up to 60,000 pounds. Now, I suppose you're wondering what we're doing with dinosaurs here at the studio. Well, these baby brontosauruses are just a few of the hundreds of three-dimensional animated figures developed for the World's Fair. Although fairs are supposed to feature the newest thing, we went back over a hundred million years for these models. In a few minutes, we're going to take you backstage and show you how we created four special exhibits for the New York World's Fair, the greatest show on Earth, next to Disneyland. You have questions, we have answers. Let's dip our hands into the virtual mailbag and uncover the truth in I Want to Know. Hey, D-Heads, this is Aaron, and I'm back with another installment of I Want to Know. Virtual mailbag is full, so let's reach in and see what questions we have for this week. Our first question is from Tyler Florissant of Missouri, and he writes, Diz Radio, I've been looking for an LP by the Firehouse 5 forever. 
The LP is hard to come by, but I was wondering if it was available digitally anywhere and if anything new is coming out. Well, they're best known as the Firehouse 5 Plus 2. Firehouse 5 Plus 2 is a Dixieland jazz band popular in the 1950s consisting of members of the Walt Disney Studios Animation Department. The members consisted of Danny Alguire, Harper Goff, Ward Kimball, Clark Mallory, Monty Mountjoy, Erdman Pinner, and Frank Thomas. Later other Disney artists joined in, Jimmy McDonald, George Probert, Dick Roberts, Ralph Ball, and George Bruns. The band was active from 1949 to 1972, playing and recording while never giving up their day jobs as animators and artists with the Walt Disney Studios. The band recorded at least 13 LP records starting in 1949. The last album, Live at Earthquake Magoons, was recorded in 1970. They have subsequently been re-released on CD and remain available. It looks like most of the albums are available on Amazon, and yes, they are available as MP3s. Our next question is from Brandon Weiss of New Jersey, and he writes, Aaron and I want to know, in listening to the show, it was making me think of many questions I have come across over the years. One of those was from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I love the movie and kind of remember the attraction. When did the attraction fully get dismantled? Does any of it exist anywhere else on the grounds? And will we see a Blu-ray of the film soon? Well, this was a great attraction that I loved as a kid. Though the attraction was a guest favorite and remained popular throughout its existence, it was very expensive to maintain, as well as having a low hourly loading capacity for an attraction of its size and expense. It was closed on September 5, 1994, without any notice, for what was outwardly termed as a temporary maintenance period. But in 1996, the closure was officially made permanent. Post-closure, several vehicles were left stationary in the lagoon and by the dock, before the entire fleet was eventually pulled from the attraction in 1996. Submarines were regularly moved around to different locations in Walt Disney World backstage for several years until eventually being stripped and buried in a landfill in 2004. However, three of the vehicles were saved from the fleet's demise, Two were shipped to be sunk in the snorkeling lagoon at Castaway Cay. Here the two submarines were placed in various areas of the snorkeling lagoon and covered with cargo netting to help sea life and microbial corrosion cling to them. As of 2008, only one of those two Nautilus submarines still exists, but both its wheelhouse and dorsal fin have been destroyed by hurricane weather. The third submarine sits in a lot behind Disney's Hollywood Studios, it was part of the Boneyard section of the Backlot Tour before it closed. Unfortunately, there is no news of a Blu-ray yet, but an HD version was released on iTunes. Well, our final question this week is from April N. of Dallas, Texas, and she writes, Big Carousel of Progress fan here. As a fan of the attraction, I heard there was a different edition of this theme song. I saw it on YouTube and such, but could you give me... More on that since I really do love the catchy song. Well, I'm a fan of this attraction also. In 1973, Carousel of Progress was closed at Disneyland and moved to Orlando where it reopened in January of 1975 as Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress.
The theme song was changed from There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow to The Best Time of Your Life. The attraction was given a new show during the move to update an increasingly outdated view of the future. General Electric, the sponsor of the Carousel Progress, commissioned a new theme song, one to focus more on the here and now than on tomorrow, and the Sherman Brothers pin, Best Time of Your Life. It was sung by Andrew Duggan, who also narrated and voiced the main character in the show. The song stayed with the show through another update in 1981 and General Electric's dropping a sponsorship in 1986. It wasn't until 1994 that the original song was brought back after a lengthy refurbishment. I personally prefer the original song myself because it's truer to the attraction. Well, D-Heads, that concludes another installment of I Want to Know. Thanks for the great questions. Keep them coming. Send all your questions or comments to Aaron, E-R-I-N, at DizRadio.com. Make sure to include your name and city so I can give you credit. And remember, D-Heads... Laughter is timeless, imagination has no age, and dreams are forever. We'll see you next week, D-Heads. The motion picture screen explodes with unprecedented power as the two masters of imagination, Jules Verne and Walt Disney, join to bring you a shattering new experience in entertainment. Read by countless millions, translated into 18 languages, this classic adventure is a story of measureless scope, fraught with fantastic beauty and danger. Four great stars give the spark of life to its leading characters in a series of inspirational performances. Kirk Douglas as the master harpooner, Ned Land. Got a whale of a tail to tell you lads, a whale of a tail or two. About the flat little fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail and it's all true, I swear by my tattoo. James Mason is Captain Nemo, who held the destiny of the world in his hands. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders defy my powers of description the secrets that are mine alone Paul Lucas as Professor Aranax of the Paris Institute I asked you to leave Professor you also asked me ashore to show me man's inhumanity to man why to justify this you are not only a murderer you are a hypocrite the proof lies out there you call that murder? Peter Lorre as Conceal. Sure, we're friends. Go ahead. Hit me. Hmm? Hit me. You mean that? Sure, go ahead. You can't miss it. Right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now we are friends. The most vivid scenes from the novel become unforgettable on the screen. The luxurious interior of the submarine. The revelation of the hidden mysteries of the deep. We do our hunting and farming here. Underwater? The sea supplies all my wants. The mighty harvests of the ocean kingdom. And the strange creatures that menace the intruders on the ocean floor. And after a safe return, the memorable dinner party.
remarkable. This tastes like veal. The flavor deceives you. That is filet of sea snake. Hmm? I guess this isn't lamb. That is brisket of blowfish with sea squared dressing, basted in barnacles. <clears throat> What is it? That's a recipe of my own. Sotay of unborn octopus. <laughs> and to stay in your memory as the most thrilling sequence ever photographed in motion picture history, the terrifying battle with the giant squid. here with WDWN2, a quick rundown of what's happening in the parks. The Disney Princess Half Marathon is coming up on the weekend of February 20th, and if you're participating in the run, there will be plenty of merchandise to pick up as a memento. From t-shirts, sweatshirts, and sweatbands, to glassware, pins, and hats, we can assure you there will be loads of adorable options to choose from. There's even a Run Disney-themed magic band. It's available in pink and blue for $24.95. In other merchandise news, the Epcot Flower and Garden Festival merchandise lineup has been released, and we can't wait to get shopping. The Sorcerer Mickey Topiary will be taking the stage on several items like tote bags, coffee mugs, trading pins, as well as an adorable Mickey Ears headband. The ears are covered in what looks like astroturf, with a sorcerer's hat in the middle. If you're disappointed about the hat coming down in Hollywood Studios, these ears would be a great add to your collection. Next time you're at Animal Kingdom, you might notice some changes to the Tree of Life. The construction walls were removed last week, revealing some new animal-carved roots growing into the central hub area. This puts the total at over 325 animal carvings. You have to admit, that's a pretty impressive tree. And it's official. The Trolley Car Cafe Starbucks location is officially open in Hollywood Studios. Look for it on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Sunset Boulevard, and stop in to experience the theming and satisfy your caffeine cravings. Thanks for listening, and until next time, don't forget... You can fly. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize. Live every minute. Open your eyes and watch how you win it. Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam. Tomorrow is still but a dream. Right here and now, you've got it made. The world's forward marching and you're in the parade. Now is the time, now is the best time. Be it the time of joy or strife. There's so much to cheer for. Be glad you're here for it's the best time of your life. Now is the time, now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize, live every minute Open your eyes and watch how you win it Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam Tomorrow is still but a dream 
right here and now. You've got it made. The world's forward marching and you're in the parade. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Be it a time of joy or strife. There's so much to cheer for. Be glad you're here for it's the best time of your life. Now is the time. Now is the best time. Now is the best time of your life. Life is a prize. Live every minute. Open your eyes and watch how you win it. Yesterday's memories may sparkle and gleam. Tomorrow is still but a dream. Right here and now, you've got it made. The world's forward marching and you're in the parade. Now is the time, now is the best time, be it a time of joy or strife. There's so much to cheer for, be glad you're here for, it's the best time of your life. Hi everybody, this is Pat Carroll. I am so glad you're listening to Disney on Demand. And as Ursula would say, life's full of tough choices. Isn't it? <laughs> Don't forget, keep listening to Disney on Demand. Cooper. And their dealings with stressed envelope to Davis and Kirk. Right down that Millions of Americans were headed to New York City. But they weren't headed just to Manhattan or Times Square. They were also headed to Queens, home of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. To those who attended the World's Fair, it was a huge success because it, it somehow promised a bright, happy, technologically advanced future. We had Tony start going through the Unisphere because it's something that's important to us and it's important culturally. It wasn't all rose-colored glasses, though. The fair occurred on the brink of cultural change, amid political turmoil, and just as American involvement in Vietnam was beginning to escalate. Hi again, D-heads, and happy Valentine's Day to you and yours. Welcome to another installment of This Week in Disney History. I am Nathan, and ready to take you through another segment's worth of historical Disney facts and potential trivia. As always, let's begin. Starting out this week in Disney history, we start in 1914 with Disney legend, animator, and engineer Bill Justice being born in Dayton, Ohio. In 1918, Imagineer, sculptor, and Disney legend Blaine Gibson is born in Rocky Ford, Connecticut. Blaine helped create many sculptures and bronzes for the 1964-65 New York's World Fair, as well as future Disney parks. In 1929, legendary film composer Jerry Goldsmith, whose musical scores can be heard in the Disney film attraction, Soarin' Over California, and the 1998 animated feature Mulan, is born in Pasadena, California. In 1932, English actor of stage, television, and film Barry Ingham is born in Halifax, West Yorkshire. He provided the voice for Basil, or Basil, however you would like to pronounce it, the detective, for Disney's 1986 animated The Great Mouse Detective film. In 1934, Walt Disney Productions filed an application for a trademark of Mickey Mouse for use in books and newspaper comic strips. 
1935, Donald Duck made his first appearance in the Mickey Mouse Sunday Edition comic strip. In 1946, Vincent Francis Papau, a former part-time bartender and substitute teacher who went on to play professional football with the Philadelphia Eagles, was born in Pennsylvania. Despite playing just only one year of high school football and zero college football experience, he went on to play in the NFL at age 30, making him the league's oldest rookie. His story is actually the basis for the 2006 Disney film Invincible, starring Mark Wahlberg. Moving on to 1951, Disney's sixth CEO, Robert Bob Iger, is born on Long Island, New York. In 1953, Walt Disney appears as a guest on a one-hour special tribute of Ed Sullivan's TV show, The Toast of the Town, and Sullivan narrated the life story of Walt Disney with a little help from Donald Duck as the company celebrated Mickey Mouse's 25th birthday and the release of Peter Pan. In 1955, Academy Award nominations are announced at, with Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea receiving three for art direction, set de decoration, film editing, and special effects. In 1958, the Annette serial starring Annette Funicello is introduced on ABC TV's Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. In 1967, Pirates Arcade Museum opened in New Orleans Square Disneyland featuring a collection of one-of-a-kind arcade games with a buccaneer theme. The Pirates Arcade Museum is located next to what will be the exit from Pirates of the Caribbean, which will open next March. In 1968, Disney's live-action fantasy comedy Blackbeard's Ghost, starring Peter Ustinov as the ghost of Blackbeard the Pirate, Dean Jones, Suzanne Plachette, and Elsa Lanchester is released. In 1976, animator John Lunsbury, one of Walt's original nine old men, who was still a studio employee and currently working on The Rescuers, passed away at St. Joseph's Hospital in California, which is right across from the Disney studio. In 1988, Siegfried and Roy appeared on a TV special, Disney's Magic in the Magic Kingdom. The illusionists both made Sleeping Beauty Castle disappear. In 1992, Three Dog Night performed at Disney MGM Studios as part of the a Lost 70s Valentine's Day celebration. In 1993, Lumiere's Kitchen restaurant finally opens in Fantasyland at Disney World's Magic Kingdom. It will be replaced later on down the line in 06 by the Village Fry Shop and 09 by the Friar's Nut. In 1998, the Ghirardelli Soda Fountain and Chocolate Shop has its grand opening at the Downtown Disney Marketplace in Florida. In 1999, the first Disney Cruise Line wedding occurs at Castaway Cay. Moving on to 2000, actor Jim Varney, famous for his Ernest P. Worrell character, passes away of lung cancer in Tennessee at age 50. Many will remember him, as stated, for his role as the Ernest character, as well as Slinky Dog in Toy Story 1 and 2 and Jebediah Cookie Farnsworth in Disney's Atlantis The Lost Empire, as well as many Disney documentaries. Also in 2000, Disney's The Tigger Movie, narrated by John Hurt, featured five new songs by the Shimmer Brothers, is released. Also in 2000, Disney fans dressed up in tuxedos and formal gowns to attend the Royal Ball held at the Disneyland Hotel in California for Cinderella's 50th anniversary. In 2001, Disney's second Anaheim Park and eighth theme park in the world, Disney's California Adventure Park officially opened along with its new Grand Calif Californian Hotel. In 2003, Disney's The Jungle Book 2 has its premiere at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, California. In 2006, the Walt Disney Company reacquires the rights to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit finally back from NBC Universal along with sports considerations for ESPN. In 2007, Randy Newman's Our Town, featured in Disney Pixar's Cars, 
wins Best Song Written for Motion Picture, Television, or Other Visual Media at the 49th Grammy Awards. Also in 2007, Atlanta Brave pitchers and catchers report for spring training at Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex. It is the Braves' 10th season at the Florida facility. In 2009, Disney's Hollywood Studios celebrated the grand opening of its newest attraction, the American Idol Experience. The very first dream ticket would be given February 12, 2009 to Vanessa Chialo, who won her with her rendition of No One by Alicia Keys. In 2010, as of this day, the Walt Disney Company has operated longer without Walt Disney than it did with him. The company was founded on October 16, 1923, and Walt passed away December 15, 1966. Also in 2010, Starstruck, Disney Channel's 78th original movie, premiered with an audience of 6 million viewers. And also in 2010, the famous Pirates of the Caribbean ship docked at Oahu's Kalioa Harbor in Hawaii. The ship has arrived as a prop to be used in the filming of the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film. Traveling at 10 miles per hour, its journey took, from, it took it from the Bahamas to LA and then to Kalioa. In 2011, Disney legend Bill Justice passes away of natural causes the day after his 97th birthday in Santa Monica, California. He worked on such classics as Fantasia, Alice in Wonderland, Bambi, and later moved on to working with animatronics for the Disney theme park attractions, such as Pirates of the Caribbean. Also in 2011, the animated feature Romeo and Juliet, based on William Shakespeare's play Romeo and Juliet, is released by Touchstone Pictures and is their first since 1993's Nightmare Before Christmas. In 2012, Jake and the Neverland Pirates' Peter Pan Returns premieres on the Disney Channel. In 2013, the red carpet premiere of Oz the Great and Powerful happened at the Hollywood's El Capitan Theater, as well as Walt Disney World celebrating Valentine's Day with love songs and a mass wedding vow renewal at the foot of Cinderella Castle, using 50 couples that were selected throughout a promotion on the Disney Parks blog as they gathered with Disney princesses such as Snow White and Aurora and their respective princes performing on stage alongside of Mickey and Minnie. In 2014, Blank, a Vinylmation love story, an original stop-motion animated film by Disney is released exclusively through Google Play platforms. The Disney Interactive Production is a 38-minute feature film that follows Blank, an unpainted Vinylmation figure who goes on a journey to find his lost soulmate. Also in 2014, Disney legend and veteran animator Floyd Norman appears on ABC's The View to discuss being the first black animator hired by Walt Disney in 1955. And D-Heads, we're going to end this week in Disney history in 2015, when recently the soundtrack for Disney's blockbuster Frozen picks up two Grammy Awards 16 months after the film's release in late 2013. The two awards were Best Song Written for Visual Media, Let It Go, and Best Compilation Soundtrack for Visual Media, Frozen. Well, D-Heads, that's all again for this week in Disney history. Hope you enjoyed and learned something maybe you didn't know. Have a great week, and as always, see you real soon. Something about
Taking you on those magical journeys from your lifetime of Disney. See? Wow! It's Disney On Demand. Dibs. Here's your host, Jonathan Johnson. Okay, I'm convinced. And a little disgusted. All right, all of you D-heads, so I'm back once again, and I want to extend a very special thank you to the D-team once again of Caitlin, Nathan, and Aaron for stopping in here this week and, you know, sharing their signature segments with you. Remember, continue to bring those questions, continue to connect up with the D-team, and you can always connect up with the D-team and email them directly at dizradio.com. That's D-I-Z radio.com. So all of you D-heads, as we continue on our trek here this week, we have some great things as we're taking that look back to the 1964 and 65 World's Fair with Ryan Ritchie, the director of the documentary After the Fair. We have a lot of great things on the horizon and much more news here. But before I jump into news, I do want to say next week is our 100th show. Yes, monumental here. And we're going to have a slightly different show for you. So get ready for that. And you definitely want to tune in. And coming up, we have our 101st show, which marks our 100th guest here at Diz Radio. So get ready, all of you D-heads. So jumping right back into news hot off the D-wire instead of me rambling on here, how about the cast of Disney's new DCOM movie, Bad Hair Day, is going to be tweeting live during its premiere. That's right, it has recently been announced that the cast of Disney Channel's upcoming new original movie, Bad Hair Day, is going to be live tweeting during the premiere on Friday, February 13th. Both Laura Morano and Lee Allen Baker are going to be answering questions. Now, they are going to be having many of these questions being shared on Facebook, as well as many others. Now, the Disney Channel did write, Laura Morano and Lee Allen Baker will be joining us live to answer your questions during the premiere of Bad Hair Day. So make sure to get your questions in for them below. Be sure to send your questions for Laura and Lee Allen to be used during the film by using hashtag Bad Hair Day. Now, the star of Bad Hair Day, Laura Morano, wrote and performs the song for the film, for the ride. Now the TV movie follows a high school tech whiz, Monica, on her disastrous prom day, starting when she wakes up with an uncontrollable hair and destroyed gown and ending with her leaning on a cop who's on the search for a missing necklace that's inexplicably in her possession. Now prom day only gets worse when the unlikely duel is, is pursued by a dog jewel thief on a wild chase across the city. Definitely going to be fun, a brand new Disney Channel original movie, and they're going to be tweeting live on Friday, February 13th. Now, since we are talking about Disney Channel, let's talk about Rainey Rodriguez and how she's very excited to direct an episode of Austin and Alley. Now, if you're not a Disney Channel watcher or you don't have tweens or anything like that, aiming for something new, Rainey Rodriguez has confirmed that she's going to be directing Disney Channel's sitcom Austin and Alley, which she also stars in. As she has said, I will be directing in a couple of weeks, she told the Hallmark Channel's Home and Family during an appearance earlier this week. I'm very, very excited, and her brother was a big supporter, and it has been something we've both wanted to do, to get behind the camera, direct, write, and produce, as she went on. She then added that the opportunity came up, and I was really excited to do it. She, however, didn't share future details on her directorial debut, just that she is very excited. Now, Rainy Rodriguez, for all of you D-heads out there who don't watch the Disney Channel, she stars as Trish on Austin and Alley. She had also had starring roles on such series as Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, I'm in the Band. Now, her brother, Rico Rodriguez, is also an actor. He rose to stardom on his starring role as Manny Delgado on the hit family sitcom, Modern Family. Now, moving away from the Disney Channel, let's talk about toys. And how about the innovative Miles from Tomorrowland product line coming 
from Tomy to be showcased at the New York World's Fair. Yes, ahead of the New York Toy Fair, Disney Consumer Products unveiled the innovative toy line from Tomy, inspired by Disney Junior's Intergalactic Adventure series, Miles from Tomorrowland, which launched last week Friday and reached over 2.0 million unique viewers on the channel. Now, since the debut of Disney Junior, we've continued to build our portfolio of unique and inspiring products that delights parents and their preschoolers, said Josh Silverman, Executive Vice President of Global Licensing through Disney Consumer Products. Space exploration is incredibly rich territory for innovation, and we're excited to launch a product collection that will capture kids' imaginations and help bring STEAM themes to life at home. Now, Miles from Tomorrowland introduces young adventurer Miles Callisto as they help connect the galaxy on behalf of the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, yes, the TTA. Now, Miles from Tomorrowland is inspired. Tommy Toy Line launches retail this summer with vehicles, figures, and play sets, as well as many scientific facts for kids ages 2 to 7 from NASA and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Now, pushing right along here, let's get into apps, and how about Disney launching a suite of creative art apps tied to the Disney Imagine Academy learning brand. Yes, the world's largest publisher of children's books and apps, Disney Publishing Worldwide, has released Mickey's Magical Arts World, an app that gives children curriculum-based tools to explore creative arts by making and doing. For the first time ever, children can create their own characters and bring them to life in real Disney cartoons, alongside Mickey and his friends. Now, children can also experiment with basic music concepts and practice art and design. Mickey's Magical Arts World is available now through the Apple App Store and is the second of five subjects scheduled to be released this year as part of Disney's Imagine Academy, Disney's new learning initiative for families for children ages 3 to 8. Following the successful launch of Mickey's Magical Math World, we are thrilled to introduce the Arts of Disney Magic Academy, our flagship learning brand. Now, this is fantastic and a great way for them to just push the brand further. Now, Disney's Magic Academy, Mickey's Magical Arts World, is going to provide children with fundamental tools in a wide-ranging creative arts curriculum and many different experiences, including Mickey's Sketch Artist, Donald's Costume Play, Mickey's Music Maker, Pluto's Crafty Creator, and Minnie's Architect. Now, this is going to be a great way to connect, and if you want to find out more about this, I have used the apps myself for my children. You can find out more at Disney Magic academy.com or facebook.com slash Disney Academy. So all of you D-heads, with that said, I did have some more news here, but we are running long here this week, so I'm going to release the reins here a bit. I'm going to get a drink. We're going to have some fun. And when I come back, we're going to have the director of the documentary after the fair about the 1964 and 65 New York World's Fair. We also have more from the D-team as we have Paige with the Magical Music Review covering one of my favorite Disney gems and also Jason with The Vault giving you another Blu-ray and DVD to add to your collection. So all of you D-heads, I'm going to release the reins here. We're going to have some tunes and when I come back, we're taking a trip back in time to the 1964 World's Fair. Be right back, all of you D-heads. Hear ye, hear ye. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Magic Kingdom. You are warmly invited to join Mickey Mouse and his Fantasyland friends for a magical celebration in the streets. Dreams will come true, hearts will soar, and you will become a part of the magic. For the time has come to take your places and prepare to welcome... The wondrous and wonderful Festival of Fantasy!
Cooper and their dealings with pressed envelope to Davis and Kirk right down that and the New York Exposition of 1964 is the greatest World's Fair of all times. This is uh, what we call our Imagineering Department. It's where we dream up our new projects for Disneyland or World's Fair. You might be wondering how an animation studio like ours got into the World's Fair business. And frankly, I've often wondered about that myself. But we've been preparing for this international exposition for many years without realizing it. Little did we know when we dreamed up Mickey and Donald here that someday they would be the ancestors of the mammoth animated characters we've created for this fair, such as this Tyrannosaurus Rex here, the carnivorous lizard of prehistoric times. Our work with three-dimensional characters started when we needed a giant squid for our feature picture, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Now, the script called for a lifelike monster big enough to destroy a submarine. And obviously, you can't hire an actor like that through central casting. So we had to create our own two-ton squid. Lights, camera, action. It's time for this week's Disney On Demand special guest. All right, all of you Disney fans, you tuned in for another magical installment of Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. And as we continue to bring you all the magic and memories from your lifetime of Disney, one of those is one that many of you recall. You think back to the Magic Kingdom and all of you park hoppers out there, you love many things like the Carousel of Progress, Small World, and many other, I guess, tidbits you like to call it, and those vintage uh, videos of Walt if you weren't alive at that time like myself. But now you can travel back in time with the love of the fair from 1964 to 65 with the New York's World's Fair in an all-new documentary. You can hear behind the scenes and many other things. And we have none other than the man behind this documentary, Ryan Ritchie, here with us. Welcome to Disney On Demand. Jonathan, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It is our pleasure having you on. I mean, you know, the the World's Fair is synonymous with Disney fans. It's that kind of thing where every Disney fan talks about the World's Fair and their knowledge of it, their love of it. And they all know many attractions came from the World's Fair. And we've seen the vintage footage of Walt and all those kinds of things. But how many people really understand or know the World's Fair? And, you know, you have uncovered that in this documentary that is completely different. It's something that really delves into that. You discover how the fair was shaped and how it changed pop culture and many other, I guess, things and avenues into the way we look at stuff. I guess to delve deeper, what got you, I guess, into, one, wanting to make films, and two, what took you to the World's Fair? Well, the short answer is that Disney took me to the World's Fair. Um, (laughs) My interest in making films actually started with performing and being on stage and the earliest time I can remember being on stage was I was maybe six or seven years old and I got pulled on stage at the Hoop-dee-doo review and so that that was uh that was like my first experience being on stage looking out the bright lights you know and everybody's there and granted I'm just putting my arms up because I conquered the bear or whatever the storyline is there at the Hoop-dee-doo review it's been a little while but uh that that got me started in wanting to perform and, and entertain folks. And a few years later, maybe seventh grade, I think it was, I ended up doing, we, we were doing a paper on Greek mythology and we had an option to do a video instead. And everybody else did the, did the paper. And I thought, oh, well, I try a video. That seems like it might be easier than writing a paper. Turns out that wasn't the case. Uh, <laughs> 
But when uh, when I was done with it, the teacher showed it to our class, and people got a kick out of it. And then there was an assembly. I think we were watching uh, Herbie. Herbie the Love Bug was always a big uh, movie must-see in school. And little did I know she was going to show this video I'd made to the entire class. And so I was so embarrassed this thing's on on screen and people are laughing and really wasn't the kind of thing you were supposed to laugh at but <laughs> getting that reaction from people it just you know it it planted the seed that that I thought wow you know what this is this is really powerful and this is a lot of fun to use video to uh to to engage people and and to help them you know sort of learn about some something new and different so that's where it started for me as far as video production began and uh we we didn't have any movie studios i grew up in a small town in central pennsylvania so uh, my first real job was as a, a dj at a small small town radio station and uh after that i think it was right after i graduated from college i auditioned to be uh a cru- the a dj on the fairly new disney cruise lines at the time and <laughs> it turned out as the dj you also had to be uh, help with the scuba instruction, which I, I I don't want to say I can't swim because that sounds too negative. I'll say I'm not a, uh, a real adept swimmer. So that was my, I always wanted to be in Imagineering. You know, my family, we would go to the Disney parks every summer. And so I always wanted to do something with Disney. And this seemed like the way to do it, but it didn't work out. And I didn't get the job on the cruise ship. So fast forward some years later, uh, and as I'm doing video production work, I do a lot of corporate work and that sort of thing. But I finally had the time to put in and, and tell this story about the World's Fair, which came from the fact that all those trips to Florida as a kid, I loved Epcot, specifically Epcot Center. And so, you know, as I got a little bit older, I learned about how sort of the layout and a lot of the ideas were borrowed from this World's Fair. And so I learned about that, learned more about the fair. And then about five years ago now, four or five years ago, my wife and I were driving through New York and we're driving along and there are the towers of what's left of the New York State Pavilion. And up until that point, I really didn't know that there were still physical objects left in Flushing Meadows Corona Park. So we pulled in and took a look around, walked around the grounds and you just... You just have that feeling that that something took place there, the feeling that millions of people congregated there. And I, I thought, wow, you know what? I really need to, to do a documentary about this and hopefully use it to, uh, to sort of work my way in and, and as an excuse to uh, talk to some Disney legends that I always wanted to meet. So it all worked out great. According to plan. Well, you know, and it's one of those roundabout ways where, you know, like you said, it's always that initial love of Disney, and all of us try to break in there. I mean, I myself, you know, I wanted to be an Imagineer, went to school for animation and all that kind of fun stuff. Even tried out for the new Mickey Mouse Club at the time at one point in my life, you know. But everything always brings you back. And in your case, you know, like you said, Epcot Center. And I love how you rang in the center part because that is that is true to the times. You know, Epcot Center is what it was all about. Now, in, you know, looking back at the World's Fair and getting into this production now, and I guess what really got you sparked as to, you know, what happened after the fair was over? What happened in terms of pop culture? What impact did the fair have on America and the world? And, you know, what was it like, I guess, what 
really got it sparking in your brain in terms of how do you want to, you know, what they, they, they sold these for scraps. They sold them uh, apart. They were shipped all around the United States. What made you think, all right, I want to trek. I want to find these. I want to locate them. And I want to see just what happened after the fair was gone. It started, I thought it would be maybe a three-month project. I thought, ah, oh, this fair happened. Let's do a little movie about where some of the things ended up after the fair was over. And as I started down that path, uh, you would learn these fascinating little tangents about objects. And one thing would lead to another. And, for example, we our very first day, the very first shoot we did was an interview with Rolly Crump. And... I, you know, that this was a dream come true to meet an Imagineer and, and to shoot this interview with him. We could have stopped production there and I would have been satisfied. But as we're wrapping up that interview, he said, you know, you really should talk to Bob. And I didn't know who he meant at the time, but of course he's referring to Disney legend Bob Gurr. So the next thing I know, hours later, we're at his house and we're shooting an interview with him. And the whole project had that that spirit where one person would lead you to another person or one lead about an object would lead you to another object. And so it grew and grew and grew. I'd love to say I, from out of the get get go, I had this plan, you know, we'll drive all over the country and it'll be this, this big production, but it really sort of snowballed after that uh, initial seemingly simple idea of seeing where these things ended up. And so that then also turned into, as you said, the people, the cultural uh, ideas, the technology that was at the fair and, and where we see that technology today. Well, definitely, you know, and, you know, as a Disney fan like yourself, like you said, talking to, you know, legends like like Crump and Bob, and those are just huge monumental things in terms of the World's Fair and in terms of people behind it. Now, in looking at the World's Fair and doing your research and looking back at the entire fair itself, you know, the 64-65 World's Fair, everyone knows the term. They, they kind of know about it. Disney fans know about it a little bit more than others sometimes. I guess in doing your research, what are some of the items that really stuck out in your mind as like key attractions that were just you know wow factors and huge and influential you know for america and the world at the time well it's interesting to think about the pavilions that weren't from disney because these were largely companies that were designing things that were really outside of their wheelhouse for example one of the huge pavilions and and one that was quite memorable was general motors futurama 2 which basically back in the 3940 fair they was the uh, gm had the original futurama and so they repeated that with futurama 2 which took a look at space exploration and some some thoughts they had about how we'd put roads down in the jungle uh but remember gm they're not in the business of making attractions and so And yet they, as I understand it, in-house came up with the ride system, for example, for that attraction. So it's really interesting to think about the companies putting these huge pavilions together with these huge attractions. And this is a time before we have theme park consultants and uh, Aero Engineering, for example, who did uh, a lot of the early steel coaster work. They, They weren't really... Those kinds of companies weren't really involved with the fair, and so it's really interesting to see what these companies would come up with that really, you know, they're sort of winging it at the time as far as the uh, presentation of of the attraction they've come up with. I guess out of their realm, and you know, and everybody always looks at Disney, but like you said, many of these were just 
trying to create something different, something unique. And, and, you know, they're demonstrating computers and terminals and just things that were, you know, off the charts for their time too, and also out of their wheelhouse. Now, in looking at some of these items that weren't Disney, um, you know, aside from GM, are there any like structures or architectural design or artwork that just really stood out to you as that wow factor that just remains memorable when you look at old historical photos? One that I'm always impressed with was the IBM Pavilion, and some people refer to it as the IBM Egg. And if you see pictures of it, essentially, it sort of looked like an egg. It was it was up in the air. I think it was 20, 30 feet suspended up in the air above uh, the tree line, essentially. And although it looked like an egg, it really was mimicking the sort of golf ball shape of the IBM Selectric typewriter head. And what would happen is people would basically go into these seats on the ground and then the seats would go up into the egg and that's where there would be this multimedia presentation i believe it was 11 screens they had this multimedia presentation on and there was also a host who would come down on a little platform in front of you so you know again the disney connection if you think about it it's almost like a a really early version of soren the fact that you you have these folks in three lines that that go up in and, and uh, experience this attraction. Now they weren't flying around, but that, that was one of the iconic uh, pavilions. You know, you also have the Unisphere, which still exists today, and the New York State Pavilion, which we cover significantly in the movie, is, is an interesting story because we still have remnants of the pavilion and there, there are efforts to either preserve it as it is or restore it to its glory during the fair. And for those who aren't familiar this pavilion was huge. It had this multi-panel, multi-color uh, roof that was suspended over the entire pavilion. And there were three observation towers. I believe the top one topped out at just under 300 feet. And so you could really take in the fair from up there. Uh, and, and to this day, even though it's, it's in ruins, it's still awe-inspiring when you when you stand there and look at it. Definitely. And like you said, you do cover that pretty well in the documentary. In the New York State Pavilion... I mean, you know, uh, what they called was the Tent of Tomorrow, you know, designed by uh, Philip Johnson. I mean, it was, like you said, it's it's one of those that's iconic. And in something, in preserving that, I think, would be just iconic in itself because it shouldn't get lost because so many pieces of the fair have been lost over the years, correct? They've been lost and it continues to be a battle against time. Uh, one of the things we talk about in the documentary was the Austrian Pavilion. And the Austrian Pavilion after the fair ended, moved to western New York where it was a uh, served as the lodge at a ski resort. And we went and interviewed the folks who, who owned it and we shot some footage of it. And uh, 10 days later, it burned to the ground and it's gone. And so it kind of reinforced this idea that the real enemy of a lot of the remaining items is time. And as time passes, we're losing you know, the buildings and we're also losing the ability to talk to the people who, who designed these buildings and, and got them ready for the fair. So it really, you know, drove home the fact that just because something's there today, it doesn't mean it'll be there tomorrow if we don't work to preserve it and, and sort of recognize these landmarks from the fair, like the the New York State Pavilion. Like you said, you know, it's one of those things where you're running out of time. You know, over the years, you know, people remember, you know, even as a child, you know, you look back at old videos of the World's Fair and you're like, oh, it was still 
kind of, you know, kind of still in recent history. And now it just goes farther and farther. And that's what your documentary is doing is, you know, in, in a way, I guess the way to look at it is you are helping preserve that. You know, if you can't get out there and paint the buildings or save some of these things, you know, this documentary with the interviews that you're doing and the in-depth look and, you know, creating this, it's probably one of the top-rated, top-notch documentaries that I've seen about the World's Fair because most of them are just kind of fluff material. And I've watched a lot because I, you know, like anyone else, I love these historical pieces. And, you know, your documentary is kind of encapsulating that. I guess, how does that feel knowing that you might be one of the last remaining people to, I guess, preserve something that is so significant in American culture? Well, I'll tell you, I wish I had known that when we started. <laughs> uh, for example, it, it really drove it home for me when the Austrian pavilion burned to the ground because we had only taken some cursory shots of that building with the intention of returning probably two or three months later. Uh, it was very cold and snowy the day we were there. I think there was something like 14 inches of snow. So we sort of wanted to just get the interview, get the basics, and we'll come back and, and really look at this in depth. And then to see it disappear, I think that was the point when I started to realize, wow, maybe you know this might be more important than I thought it was when we started this project. This might be as you're saying, really the chance to document this period in time and the architecture and, and all the things about this fair and also to draw the uh, the lines between things that, that were uh, debuting at the fair and technologies we have today. For example, we talk about the Bell picture phone, which basically is the analog to Skype video today. And it was the first place where you could uh, use a computer search engine. Now, granted, it wasn't Google. You were just looking for uh, res a certain recipe at the NCR pavilion or looking for a New York Times headline at, at IBM. But for millions of people, this was the first time they'd ever interacted with a computer. Because at that time, of course, you know, computers were things that took up rooms and maybe 30 companies in the country had them. So I, while it's important to preserve the... Um, basically to to help future generations understand what the fair was all about. I also want to make sure that people today recognize the things they use and the things they take for granted that they might not know have a connection back to the back to the fair. Those are the things like you said looking back, you know, with precursors to the technology and looking at this technology too. You know, that's going to I guess ringle it back into, you know, cuz you know, looking at Disney and many of those items, you know, you know, we're always going to have to influx a little bit of Disney in here being a Disney show. But, um, you know, not everybody wants to hear about, you know, Wisconsin's largest cheese and their pavilion. Even, even though me being from Wisconsin, you know, I might be all about that. But I guess in, in bringing it back to Disney and technology, you know, things like Carousel Progress and Small World and items like that, I guess looking at some of these items and pulling them forward into the parks, I guess what are your thoughts about that and looking at these things still years later, full in motion, still beloved by many, as opposed to like much of the fair that's been lost? Well, I don't think you can overstate how important the, the World's Fair was for Disney. And when you say about it coming back to the parks, sure, we had things like It's a Small World, Come Back to the Park, and you have great moments with Mr. Lincoln, Come Back to the Park. But you also have to draw the line and see, connect the dots and see, well, it's the technology from the boat ride side of It's a Small World and the animatronic side of uh, Mr. Lincoln that gives us Pirates of the Caribbean. And so... It's not even just the attractions that came back, but 
that was such a such a high point for the company and and so important to uh, all the things that would come after it in terms of animatronics in terms of uh guest flow and and a lot of little things too it's funny to me there are some things that today we think oh that's something you primarily see at a disney park something like a kodak photo spot now granted they were doing that at Disneyland, but it's always funny to me to find a slide of the World's Fair and there's the Kodak photo spot. And, uh, you know, to see the, the Disney characters in costume uh, running, through, running through the World's Fair. It's always interesting because today we, we tend to uh, think of all the Disney uh, attractions and characters and all that as being confined to the Disney park. So it's kind of interesting to see all of that in another environment. Uh, you know, in, in looking back at this and your documentary too, you know, you touched base upon so many different things, including uh, a one that wasn't a Disney entity, but is now a Disney entity. And I think you know where I'm going with that and how influential many things were with, you know, connection to puppeteers like Jim Henson and Bill Baird. I mean, I guess, uh, what was it like uncovering many of those kind of connections as well with the fair, which now surprisingly are now part of the Disney company? <laughs> well, it's really crazy how it all connects. As you said, uh, Jim Henson, who was a young, relatively unknown puppeteer, when you think about the uh, planning of the fair, which would have been 62-63, uh, he had submitted some drawings for the Chrysler Pavilion, and ultimately Chrysler went with Bill Baird. Now, Bill Baird is a gentleman that uh, folks who listen to this podcast might know him because they're a little more attuned to you know, some, some history with puppeteering and all of that. But, but Bill Baird was basically Jim Henson before Jim Henson, and, and he ended up getting that contract. But uh, as we talk about in the movie, Jim Henson actually ended up doing another project for another pavilion in the second season of the fair. So it's funny, as you said, to see how that's all now within the Disney universe. Uh, and it's also one of the people we, we interviewed was uh, John Favreau, who, of course, is involved with Iron Man and directed Iron Man 2, which is set in basically uh it's called the stark expo but for those who haven't seen it it's essentially as if the world's fair was happening today and it's kind of funny to think there's a movie uh that ultimately was released by disney about a world's fair with a song from richard sherman and eventually the display of the iron man you know uniforms and props and so forth and costumes would end up in the original Carousel Progress building, so at Disneyland. So it's really, uh, it's really something to see how you know who could have predicted then how all these different connections would be made from the fair. You know, stepping aside from uh, you know Disney end of things and interviewing many of the people, like you talked with John and you know Gurr and all those guys. In in looking back and interviewing a variety of these people for your documentary, which I have to say, you know, I truly enjoyed because I, you know, of course. Well, look at the type of show we are. You know, we we love interviewing people and getting the stories and looking back. Um, was there any one person on your documentary that you were just in awe about, whether that was even off air with things that you couldn't tell us, but just one of those where you just really were just intrigued with everything they had to say about the fair? Well, what was amazing to me was how interested in the fair uh, John Favreau is. He grew up next to Flushing Meadows Corona Park, but he was born after the fair had occurred. And, you know, we talked, it must have been a good hour 
that we sat there and talked about the fair. And I can remember one of his press people saying, Hey John, I, you know, I never knew this was so important to you. And he is just uh, really a big fan of the fair. And I, I had no idea about that. Now, beyond that, uh, <laughs> back to the, the Imagineers, of course, that was, that was a huge thrill for me uh, to talk to them. And even Barry Sonnenfeld, the, the uh, director writer of men in black, you know, he went to the fair. He was telling us 60 or 70 times as, as a small kid, and it just stuck with him. And that's one of the things that's always interesting to me is that no one ever says, huh, I, I think I went to that fair. I'm not sure. Everybody has a very clear uh, memory of attending that event if, if they went there. So it really, whether you went for a day or whether you went every weekend, it, it really stuck with people. And we also try to get across the idea that it wasn't just the physical objects. People went to the fair and decided to get involved in different careers to uh, be interested in science or technology. Uh, Tom Fitzgerald, one of the Imagineers at Disney, he went, he attended the fair as, uh, as a child and seeing those Disney attractions were what led him to, to join Imagineering. So it's just really incredible to, to think about the connections it has to people you wouldn't even think have any connection to the fair. Uh, but it, it seems that a lot more things than you would think. It's almost like seven degrees of, of fair separation. Everything sort of comes back to the fair at some point. I wish I could be one of those people where I could say I went, but I was would have been negative 10. So I can only dream. You know, I guess... In, in moving forward and speaking of time, let's talk about, you know, some other things and the Westinghouse Pavilion and, um, you know, placing that second time capsule next to the one from 1939. Now, um, you know, many times they say open in 50 years, open in whatever. I guess, uh, what are your thoughts on it being open in the year 6939? Well, I, I guess Westinghouse has a lot of faith in standard in uh, stainless steel because uh, 69... Uh, 5,000 years is the, uh, the expected life of that time capsule. And who knows who or what will dig it up at that time. Uh, <laughs> maybe it'll be automated drones that dig it up and send it to, to humans living on a, a co- space colony somewhere. I don't know. But I, I think it really gets to this idea that in, in the 1960s, around the time of the fair, it just really seems like people thought more about the future and they were more optimistic that there would even be a future. And of course the irony is the world was not a perfect place. Then Uh, we had the Vietnam war start uh, underway. And of course, world war two people still had memories of world war two. So I think people, I don't know if it was because of adversity, but I, I just feel like 50 years ago, people, uh, we're better about envisioning things 50 years in the future than we are today, looking 50 years ahead. And I really think in some regards, that's what you see with that time capsule. They were so optimistic that, uh, of course, let's do it for 5,000. Why not? <laughs> you know, like you said, you know, who knows who's going to pick this up? Who's going to pull it out? I mean, just recently they, they pulled one from what, uh, you know, Civil War era and, and Thomas Edison and things like that. And who knows how these things are going to, I guess, hold up. But... 
with that said and getting back to things holding up and going back and looking at all these remnants and traveling around and doing this documentary, is there, uh, looking at many of these locations, are there many of them where, uh, one calls out to you because of its architecture, one calls out to you because of its history, or I guess when you look at it too, are you kind of perplexed and, you know, watching the documentary of where they ended up, I guess, is that sometimes surprising to you? Well, <laughs> it it is actually. I mean, take for example the Wisconsin Pavilion. You have a pavilion that essentially is in two parts. One of which uh, today is in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania. The other half is back in Wisconsin, where it's a, a gift shop and in, in front of a radio station. And it it, it just uh, it's really hard for us today, I think, because we would just demolish everything and move on. But people saw promise in taking these pavilions and moving them somewhere else with the intention of them being uh, a big draw for visitors. Probably the biggest example of that, uh, beyond obviously the Disney attractions, would be the Spain Pavilion. You had you had this pavilion at the fair. Fair ends. The, fair, the uh, pavilion gets moved to St. Louis, where the mayor of St. Louis believes with, with all his heart that people will come to St. Louis to see three things. The, the new arch, the arch in St. Louis, the Bush Stadium, and the Spain Pavilion from the World's Fair. And it, it didn't quite work out that way. And within a year of, of the Spain Pavilion opening, it closed and uh, actually still exists today as the lobby of a hotel in St. Louis. But it, it really, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine today, I think, that, that we would try to, to move something like that and, and think that it would become... Uh, some sort of huge attraction. But the price was right, too, on a lot of these items because after the fair ended and things are being demolished, you know, you just had to get everything out of there. And so if someone was willing to give you $1,000 for your building or for the steel from it or whatever, fine, take it, be on your way. So uh, there were some bargains to be had, I suppose. But, um, you know, each one is is really interesting. The Golden Rondell, which is... Uh, at the SC Johnson headquarters in Wisconsin is is really a fascinating structure. The interior has been changed significantly, but it's uh, it's a golden UFO like shape that's sort of up in the air on these brick foundations, and that's uh, it's really an eye catcher when when you first see it. It's going to be this huge attraction, and as you mentioned here in Wisconsin, it's a you know a gift shop in front of a radio station, but. The thing is, is it still is relevant in terms of its history and where it came, which brings us back to the documentary. And, you know, there's not many documentaries out there about the World Fair. I mean, you had one that was produced in, I think it was 1996 or so. Uh, I think it was narrated by Judd, uh, Judd Hirsch. But, you know, and that, and that one was good. It was good. But I do have to say, not just because you're here with us, that I love how in-depth yours is. And it takes this fresh take, something different, which brings me back to, you know, your love of this and, you know, how much you've indulged in this. And I guess when it comes to getting that right feel and how the film is, and I guess, of course, there's probably many extras that uh, aren't even part of this. Now, are there some extras and some other parts of this where you're you're thinking, I might be able to do a follow-up at some point? 
Well, it's funny. After that long conversation with uh, John Favreau, I, <laughs> I said to my wife, you know, maybe we should just put this out as John Favreau talks about the fair. And it's an hour long thing of him <laughs> talking about the fair. Uh, there is so much footage, so many interviews. So we've barely scratched the, the surface on this. So I'm hoping for a really, really strong response and that we can uh, get, get back into the edit bay and, and put some of that stuff out as well. Um, there, there's some great stuff, of course, from from the Disney folks. Um, we even had a stop at the um, Disney Hometown Museum in Marceline, Missouri, which was quite by accident. We, my wife and I, went on a two week uh, road trip to visit a bunch of these sites where the the uh, relics from the fair were, and we just happened to be near Marceline. And of course, you know, uh, with the connections to Walt Disney, had to stop by there. So uh, there are a lot of places we went that were sort of. Uh, did just couldn't make it, you know, as is the case with every documentary. You have so much stuff that doesn't make it into the final cut, but there, there's a lot of material here that that we could potentially do something else with, uh, you know, provided that that we get a good response from from the first edition, we'll call it. Well, you know, we know you have a lot of different things uh, on the horizon, and of course, we could talk about it forever. But um, you know, I guess the way I look at it as, you know, people really need to check this out after the fair, the legacy of the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. I mean, so many different things that you covered in this documentary. It's truly enjoyable and fun, and there's so much more that we could touch base upon. But you also have more on your website with, you know, photos, the Sinclair dinosaurs, the Austrian Pavilion, and of course, people can order the DVD there as well. But I guess in leaving, uh, I guess, all of our listeners out there and all of our Disney fans, I guess, you know, with the World's Fair, the influence and everybody tuning in, what is that one final thing you could leave about the World's Fair and those thoughts with them? I would say that the the lesson of the World's Fair is one that we can still take with us today. And just just the concept that uh, it really it's embodied in It's a Small World that we're all here together and you know maybe if we all work together a little bit more respect each other uh, a little bit more learn about other cultures i think those were all key ideas that that came from this fair and uh i hope folks who see the documentary will will think about that and and apply it to our lives uh, to their lives today very cool. Well, you know, Ryan, it was our pleasure having you stop in. Everybody, definitely check it out. You can find it at worldsfairmovie.com. And it was our pleasure having you stop in, chat with it. And like I said, we could talk forever and, of course, delve into more from your interviews with the Disney guys and all that kind of fun stuff. But I just really encourage everybody, after us talking for the last half hour, just you got to check out the documentary. It truly is a great gem. Uh, thanks once again for stopping in, and I'm sure we'll have you back as we uncover more about the World's Fair, hopefully in that volume two. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Future world is born today.
Finder here, and uh, my friend Ron Schneider's got a wonderful book about me called From Dreamer to Dreamfinder that you should pick up. Uh, but in the meantime, you're listening to Disney On Demand. <laughs> hey there, D heads. Paige here with an all new magical music review. We've reached show number 99, everyone. We're so close to that magic 100. I had a hard time coming up with something to look at this week. I'm taking a break from the Legacy Collection for a bit. I wasn't sure where to turn, so I decided to see what was the 99th film released by Walt Disney Pictures. This could have landed me anywhere from classic animation to a true life adventure. I landed in 1970, December 24th to be exact. It was animation. A classic, for sure, who has a Legacy Collection release coming in August to celebrate its 45th anniversary. Let me set the scene. Paris, 1910. A retired opera diva, a gold-digging butler, 
two dogs, three geese, and a whole lot of cats. We're looking at the music of the Aristocats, with a score by Disney veteran George Bruns and songs by the Sherman Brothers, Floyd Huddleston, Al Rinker, and Terry Gilkson. We have some fun music to look at this week. So sit back, relax, and let's head over to Thomas O'Malley's Penthouse Pad for some music from Disney's 20th animated classic, The Aristocats. Like many classic Disney films, The Aristocats starts with a title song. The Sherman Brothers wrote The Aristocats when they returned to the Walt Disney Company. After Walt's death, they had left the company for other projects, such as Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but returned to Disney for a brief stint in the 70s. The song is sung by Maurice Chevalier, who came out of retirement from one last performance in films before he passed away. The song is whimsical and helps set the mood for the film. From the orchestration and the lyrics, you can tell it will be a fun story to watch unfold. Mr. Chevalier describes the lifestyle commonly found with aristocrats. I mean, aristocats. Whatever. One of my favorite opening songs, take a listen and enjoy. Which pet's address is the finest in Paris? Which pets possess the longest pedigree? Which pets get to sleep on velvet mats? Naturellement, the aristocats. Which pets are blessed with the fairest forms and faces? Which pets know best all the gentle social graces? Which pets live on cream and loving pats? Naturellement, the aristocats. They show aristocratic bearing when they're seen upon an airy. An aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say. Aristocats are never found in alleyways or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play. Oh no! Which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Naturellement, the aristocats. Bearing when they're seen upon an airing An aristocratic flair in what they do and what they say Aristocats are never found in alleyways Or hanging around the garbage cans where common kitties play Oh no! Which pets are known to never show their claws? Which pets are prone to hardly any flaws? To which pets do the others tip their hats? Mais naturellement, oh boy, mais naturellement, oh naturellement, the Aristocats. Phil Harris returned to Disney for a new role with the Aristocats. After previously voicing Baloo in The Jungle Book and before voicing Little John in Robin Hood, he comes to the film as Thomas O'Malley. In his song, we're introduced to Thomas, a smooth-talking alley cat. What a flirt he is! For anyone unfamiliar with the film, the viewer is introduced to Thomas as he enters the scene and introduces himself to Duchess. The orchestration is fairly minimal. Trumpets play a few, albeit small, prominent features, with clarinets, flutes, and lower voices covering the main background. Alright, enough chatter. Let's listen. I like 
like the chicha chicha roni, like they make at home on a healthy fish with the big backbone. I'm Abraham DeLacy. Giuseppe Casey. Thomas O'Malley. O'Malley the alley cat. I've got that wanderlust. Gotta walk the scene. Gotta kick up highway dust. Feel the grass that's green. Gotta strut them city streets, showing off my e clad. Yeah. Telling my friends of the social elite or some cute cat I happen to meet that I'm Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley. Mally the Alley Cat. I'm king of the highway, prince of the boulevard, duke of the avant garde. The world is my backyard, so if you're going my way, That's the road you want to see. Calcutta to Rome, or home sweet home in Paris. Monofiki, you all. I only got myself and this big old world. When I sip that cup of life with my fingers curled, I don't worry what road to take. I don't have to think of that. Whatever I take is the road I make. It's the road of life. Make no mistake for me. Yeah, Abraham DeLacy, Giuseppe Casey, Thomas O'Malley. O'Malley, the alley cat. That's right, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. The song probably considered most popular from the film will be our last one today. After a long day of walking the countryside in the city, we go to Thomas's penthouse pad, where we find Scat Cat and his gang of alley cats. Everybody Wants to Be a Cat is a fun, jazzy song sung by Phil Harris, Scatman Crothers, Thurl Ravenscroft, Vito Scotti, and Paul Winchell. Liz English, the voice of Marie, also has a short role in the song. In the film, Robbie Lester, the singing voice of Duchess, has a feature, but as of yet, any version I have come across on a CD has edited the part out. Harris and Crothers take lead in the vocals, with the other vocalists coming in on the chorus near the end of the number. Instrumentation-wise, we have percussion, a low string, and a clarinet in the beginning, accordion joining in a little bit later, and along with a prominent trumpet signifying the final run of the chorus. Now, on with the music. Well, little lady, let me elucidate here. Everybody wants to be a cat Because a cat's the only cat Who knows where it's at Tell me everybody's picking up on that feline beat Cause everything else is obsolete A square with a horn makes you wish you weren't born Every time it plays But with a square in the act 
you can set music back to the game and days of the jumbozen. I've heard some corny birds who tried to sing. Still, a cat's the only cat who knows how to swing. Who wants to dick along her dick stuff like that? When everybody wants to be a cat. A square with a horn makes you wish you weren't born. Every time he plays, oh, a rinky tinky tinky with a square in the act, you can set music back to the caveman days. Oh, a rinky tinky tinky. Yes, everybody wants to be a cat. Because a cat's the only cat who knows where it's at. When playing jazz, you always has a welcome mat. Everybody digs a swinging cat. Our time is up this week. Thanks for joining me for another dive into my Disney music library. I'll be back next week for an all-new Magical Music Review. If you have any music suggestions, questions, or general comments, you can email me at page at disradio.com. That's P-A-I-G-E at disradio.com. Or you can post a comment on our new Facebook group, Diz Radio's D-Wire. Until next time, D-Heads, see ya! Everybody! Everybody wants to be a cat. <laughs> everybody, everybody, everybody wants to be a cat. Hey, Napoleon, that sounds like the end. Wait a minute, I'm the leader. I'll say when it's the end. <coughs> It's the end. Hey, D-Heads. When you aren't enjoying Disney On Demand, head on over to DizRadio.com and listen to our famous Lifetime of Disney Player, where you can while away the hours reliving Disney classics from film, television, and the parks. What are you waiting for? Keep your hands and arms inside at all times and go to DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. And have a magical day. Oh, my siestas are getting shorter and shorter. Required voice identification. EC-82. Confirmed. Hey gang, it's me again, Jason. Welcome back down here to the vault. I hope everyone's staying warm, dry, and crisp and clean, only because... That just means it's easier to watch a movie when you're that way, because if you're soggy, wet, or, well, snowbound, well, it kind of makes it difficult to push play on a remote control. But sometimes snow days are the best days to watch movies. Since this week, we're talking a little bit about interventions, 
and I do mean interventions because that's one of my favorite places to go in Epcot. Or is it Communicore? Or what are they calling it these days? In any case, new interventions and innovations in DVDs and Blu-rays have always intrigued me. So today we're going to push the movies aside and bring forward the special features that have become such integral parts of our movie viewing pleasure. The main new feature that I have really enjoyed recently has been the addition to many of the older classics called Disney View. Now, if you haven't watched any of the older classics, uh, shame on you. But for, uh, for those who haven't and aren't certain of what I'm talking about, uh, starting with about Snow White, Peter Pan, um, the earlier, earlier classics definitely have this feature. Mainly because it avoids what I call the squeeze and tease of, of a movie. So it is able to keep the movie in its perfect aspect ratio for your television, mostly for the large screens. So what do you do with a lot of the black bars that are on the side of the, of the film? Well, a lot of artists have put in their efforts to make things look a little bit better. And again, this is a part of this idea called Disney View. It enhances the sides in which would normally have been black with backgrounds that match the feel, the mood, and the area in which the scene is depicted. So, for example, if you are watching Peter Pan and you're in the Darling home, to the sides are what I would call things that look like wallpaper to match the interior of the home. Or when you're outside, you have more of a starry appeal. Uh, Bambi's was a little more interesting because they used a lot more of the watercolors and the seasons became more of the background as it does in the movie itself. So a lot of this lends to that. Again, if you've been listening to the podcast or have been reading posts, uh, most of you may know that I am going from classic number one all the way to Big Hero 6. So uh, starting... Uh, well, obviously starting with Snow White. So I've been watching this evolution going on. Eventually, we will see this Disney View feature disappear because as the newer classics, as we'll call them, anything from more than likely from the 90s on, will more, will more than likely fill the screen as opposed to keeping it with a 4x6 aspect ratio. A lot of that has to do with the preservation of the film and or the digital print of it. So currently, I am at Sleeping Beauty, and believe it or not, of course, it's not all, Disney View is not a part of it, and there's good reason for that. Uh, as many of you know, Sleeping Beauty was shot differently, and using um, a larger film than normal, than than a standard film size. So instead of having the the bars on the side, the bars are on the bottom, and it. it Basically, Sleeping Beauty is the first widescreen film uh, to be distributed. I also think Sleeping Beauty is uh, Walt's truer vision towards what he believed Fantasia was and what other movies should become, considering Sleeping Beauty was based on a ballet, and I think he took a lot of, of wonderful images that he saw when he saw the ballet and transposed it into Sleeping Beauty. But again, that's my opinion. Um, so that's one of the major new features that comes to many of our Blu-rays. Uh, a lot of little features are wonderful in regards to pausing and holding off 
on your play features. What do I mean by that? Well, normally when you hit pause, obviously your screen is going to, to freeze and, and pause where it is. So you can come back in a little bit or later. But what's nice about the newer releases and the enhanced editions on Blu-ray is that sometimes when you pause, you're going to get some motion in a background. You're going to get um, what I like are these little flags that let you know exactly what chapter you're on, how many chapters are left, and uh, it is very stylized. And being in the video industry, I love to see stylization when it becomes a complete package. Some of them, and I haven't played with all of them yet, but some of them when you're hitting play actually give you trivia and little tidbits about where you are in the film or, or things of that nature. Really great idea and a great feature to add. Deleted scenes have been a part of our DVD viewing pleasure for millennium now. Well, maybe not that long, but okay, since the advent of the DVD. I mean, I remember when we were watching the VHS tapes, and the most gripping part of it was finding out when you got the new release what the next theatrical release was. Well, we've gone beyond that, and of course, we've added deleted scenes pretty much at the get-go of the onset of DVDs when Disney started putting them out. What I like about them... They are usually raw, and uh, some of them were ready for print, some of them weren't, but all in all, it's, it's those ideas, those flowing thoughts of what could have been, what could have been added. I mean, if you really think about it, our viewing time and the ability to sit and watch a film has gone on longer. Uh, the original classics were no more than 70 minutes long. We're now going into an almost two-hour range. It doesn't seem like much, 40 minutes to 50 minutes a difference. Yeah, it can, it can make a difference when you're sitting with small children or um, if you're sitting and trying to cram a movie in, especially if you're doing multiple movies in a day. So deleted scenes are, are just those added bonuses. But what I would love to see, this is my wish list now, is that we could take those deleted scenes Again, be it that they're raw, being that most of them aren't even with the actors themselves. Some of them are even with the animator's voice rather than the actual star of the film. What I'd love to see is them integrated into the film so that you knew where it was possibly going to go. Sometimes whole scenes are scrapped and, and plot twists are taken out, so it may not seem to work right. But we're going to go to one of my favorites, uh, my favorite deleted scene, that is, is the Pocahontas scene. And if I, if I Never Knew You, which was removed from the um, theatrical release, but was added later in the uh, 10th anniversary edition and is on the Blu-ray as well. So I, I really appreciate that. It's, it's things like that. I, I, I go back to the blue, I'm sorry, not Blu-ray, but the Laserdisc release of the work in progress of Beauty and the Beast. That's one of my prized collections. Um, it really sparked what I wanted to do as a cartoonist and an animator, and so I always hold that dear as one of the uh, pinnacles of what can be done. I, I've, I've always watched and marveled. And of course, you, you probably could do one of those in the new CG 
era, but I, it would probably look really awkward and really different. But still seeing how many Disney artists still do sketches would be pretty darn amazing. So I just wanted to highlight today about some of the changes that have happened with DVDs, Blu-rays, and eventually the 4K disc when it comes out, and who knows what happens after that. But the idea is, is that these packages that we're getting in a DVD or Blu-ray are treasures, true treasures, when you put them on that shelf. A lot of people say, why do we need the tangible things? Put everything on the cloud, keep things where they are. Well, you know, that, that's fine and dandy, and, and for those who want to do it, that's great, and I know it's wonderful when you're on the go, but it's always nice to be able to look up and see that collection you have that's, that Walt made, that Walt gave to you, and to me, that's his gift back to me. So, with that, gang, I think I've told you enough of the great things that are out there on Blu-ray and DVD, so go out put one in, try one out. Some people don't even get to a chance to try some of the special features. Do it. Take time. Maybe it's the time that you've watched the film one week and the following week you take care of all of the bonus features. Because to be honest, some of the later releases can take you a lot longer to go through. Some may just give you a, a, a Disney Stars rendition of a main theme and a couple deleted scenes. But whatever it is, Remember, those were put into a DVD package for a reason. So, pull one out and watch one later this week. And next week, well, I think Jonathan has told you enough to know what's happening for the next time. So until then, I'm going to clean up around here. Hope for, another, hope for a snow day. I haven't gotten one personally, but maybe one day and enjoy a fine Disney classic. And for those who are ready to know and my collection as we're going through, it just so happens, as it came out on Blu-ray this week, 101 Dalmatians, I so happen to have hit that point in my viewing pleasure. So, I'll be enjoying that in a few days. And until then, gang, remember, the magic of Disney movies is always inside of you. While the city sleeps, every night he creeps, just survey his domain he roams around like he owns the town he's the king he makes that plain he knows every trick doesn't miss a lick when it comes to keeping fat some city slicker no one is quicker than a bad don cat every nook and cranny and garbage can he inspects so thoroughly when he's on his rounds nothing's out of bounds to his curiosity he can't smile and purr at a pretty hurt till she don't know where she's at knows like a geiger oh what a tagger is a bat dawn He's a sly old codger, an artful dodger, a scrounger unsurpassed. A ball of fire, a nine-live wire who just can't be outclassed. Yeah, this midnight rover, he lives in clover. It's an art he's got down pat. I never was a greater smooth operator than 
about dog cat. Now our cat's been paid every accolade, and he's earned all his acclaim. In a blaze of glory, he ends our story in the feline hall of fame. But the way life goes in a year, who knows? From the family he begat, you may wind up with one of, maybe the son of, a bat don cat. About Don Cat. So now you've heard the tale I tell. That's T A L E, not T A I L. I'm talking about the tale of Bat Don Cat. All right, LVD heads. So I am back once again, and man, has it been a long show here this week. Lots of fun things on the horizon, and I want to extend a very special thank you once again to writer, director, and the man behind After the Fair, all about the 1964 and 65 World's Fair, Ryan Ritchie. Thank you once again, Ryan, for stopping in and chatting with us. And if you want to find out more about this, definitely check out his official website. And I am looking forward to that follow-up film. Seriously, I want to see more of what you've uncovered over the years of the 64-65 World's Fair. I'd also like to thank the D-team of Aaron, Paige, Caitlin, Nathan, and Jason all for stopping in here this week with your signature segments. Without you, there would be no show. And for all of you D-heads, connect up with the D-team on our official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. Go to the team page and you can learn more about the fantastic people that make this show happen. And most of all, thank you, the D-heads. You are the reason we come back every single week and do this show for you. You are the reason that we want to bring this magic and memories from your lifetime of Disney and continue to bring these shows and trek on to our 100th show next week. That's right. So thank you all the D-heads. So before I let you in as to how the show is going to be here next week because we have something pretty special planned for our 100, I do want to give you all the different ways you can stay connected here at the show and first and foremost you can always visit our official website at DizRadio.com that's D-I-Z Radio Com. There you can find our full list of past shows, the complete podcast archives, our lifetime of Disney player, and many other goodies right there on the official website at DizRadio.com. That's D-I-Z Radio.com. You can also connect up with us all over the social media outlets on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Disney On Demand. You can friend us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash John Diz. That's J-O-N-D-I-Z. You can also join our newly created Diz Radio group, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and more. Just search Disney Blue, that's B-L-U, or Diz Radio, D-I-Z Radio. So definitely connect up with us and stay connected here at the show. And remember, you can always subscribe and get the latest shows right there in your newsfeed on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Just subscribe with Diz Radio, D-I-Z Radio, or Disney On Demand. So, all of you D-heads, with that said, out of the way, next week is show 100. Yes, a monumental show here, and with that, we have very big things on the horizon, so we're changing it up. We have the D-team, and the D-team makes the show. Now, if it's one thing that's slightly different about our show is we are not a roundtable show. But next week, for show 100, as you're going to get down, get magical and uncover a little bit of gems with the team. So we have something very special planned here. Next week at the show, a very special guest stopping in and all kinds of fun as it is our 100th show here at Diz Radio. With that said, since you're celebrating Friday the 13th tomorrow, you also have Valentine's Day. Just remember, take that time, slow down, and never neglect family for business. 
catch you online and see you next week, all of you D-heads. Have a magical, magical week, and I hope you enjoyed taking that trip back to the 6465 World's Fair. It's an opportunity to experience cultures, ethnic food, and various parts of the world that maybe you would never get to see. Where could you go and see the treasures of Egypt, of Pakistan? Spain had some beautiful carvings. So you would be able to sample and experience firsthand some of the treasures that you would have to go around the world to experience. You get a chance to see the best that a country had to offer. Today, 50 years later, the fair and the exhibits from it influence our lives in countless ways. From communications to computers and pop culture to cultural understanding. This is the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. Thank you for tuning in to Disney Blues, Disney On Demand. The content and thoughts expressed are those of the show and not the Disney company. Now go on and relive the magic, memories, and appreciation from your lifetime of Disney. See you real soon.